because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a podcast where we sort out our feelings about religion through cartoons. My name is Justin. And I'm Laura. Today, we go looking for the true meaning of Christmas with the original Debbie Downer, Charlie Brown. It's a Charlie Brown Christmas. We are honored to welcome back a very important guest. She celebrated Midsummer with us earlier this year, and she's back to celebrate Midwinter now. It's Emily Vanderwerf. Emily is a critic at large for Vox, as well as the creator, writer, and producer of Arden Podcast. Welcome back, Emily. Hello. It's so good to be here. Um, I, 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 I am just thrilled to be a Christmas guest on anybody's podcast, uh, but especially <laughs> this one. I had such a great time. Uh, we recorded it around Easter. I keep wanting to be like, of course, in June. Right. Um, we did but, record on, on Easter, I believe. <laughs> on Easter. Okay. But yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy to be back here. I had such a great time the first time. And now we get to talk about, you know, Christmas, my, my, my favorite thing ever. <laughs> Well, that's what I want to start with. Laura, every year, imposes what she calls Christmas tyranny on mm-hmm. our household. And it's tyranny because she gets particular, particularly <laughs> tyrannical about it, but also because I think I'm much less Christmas-focused than Laura is. You're a Grinch, and, okay. is what you are. You know, some may say, some may call it that. <laughs> um but I want to figure out, I just want to get a sense of your guys' relationship to Christmas. Because I, t- I mean, I don't want to prejudge anything here, but I, I can speak for myself. I don't have, I'm not of any religious denomination. I don't celebrate Christmas by going to church. I, I've i been with Laura for, how many years have we been together now? Oh, and not marriage, but like, you've been together for like 10 years. 11, 12, yeah. almost, yeah. And I don't think you've been in, you've set foot in church that entire time either. Yes, I have. Okay, without maybe. you. Okay, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. But uh, neither but, of us. Uh, all, this is all by way of saying neither of us are very religious people. No, and yet you you love Christmas, and so I don't. I I. But I don't want to speak for you, Emily. So tell us a little bit about your relationship to Christmas. Um, it's complicated. I think Christmas got me in the divorce. Um, I uh <laughs> have been really wrestling with that. So growing up, obviously Christmas was a very fun time. I was a child and, um, I, you know, uh, it was a hugely important thing in the evangelical church that I grew up in. Um, and you know, we'd have a yearly Christmas pageant and all of these things at church and at school and so on and so forth. Um, but I didn't ever have like Santa Claus. My parents told me when I was very young that Santa Claus wasn't real. Like they told me that Mm. at three. Um, and I, uh, I really like uh, spent most of childhood, you know, being like in this space where Christmas was this sacred religious time where you also got presents. Um, as a teenager, I kind of started like I, I said this on Blank Check last year, but I, I very like obsessed with movie Christmas. I'm very mm-hmm. obsessed with like feeling like I live in like a Christmas movie or a, a Christmas episode of a TV show or something like that. But one that's a little bit melancholy. I don't want to like go all in on joy and good cheer, apparently. Um, But yeah, as I reached adulthood, 
I had this like thing where Christmas just became at first ironically important to me and then like genuinely important to me because that's what happens with everything in my life. Like mm-hmm. how in, you know, 2010 I was like, well, I like Taylor Swift. That's a joke because of course it is. And now, you know, I'm, 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 I'm her biggest fan. Um, <laughs> That's that's actually true. They proved it. Um, she knows about it's it. It's a scientific <laughs> We've fact. Spoken. <laughs> um, but yeah, I so I started going on this tear. There were all these like blogs that posted uh, rips, like like MP3 rips of old Christmas albums, like that were no longer in print from like the fifties and sixties. And I would just download everything because I was like really depressed. <laughs> and uh, that was. That ended up being the thing I did. I have 41 gigabytes of Christmas music that Whoa. I don't really listen wow. to. And in recent years, I've kind of like fallen out with Christmas because I've I've become estranged from my family. And like being really into Christmas in California, which is a weird place to be really into Christmas, was kind of a proxy for not being able to be with my family. And then my family and I, you know, my parents at least. And I had this sort of, you know, divide between us. So the last Mm -hmm. couple of years, Christmas has just not been that important. Last year we put up our tree on Christmas Eve, for instance. But this year I feel that, I feel that old spirit coming back. I'm, I'm listening to a lot more music. Now that there's like a finality in that relationship, it's easier for me to embrace Christmas on my own terms, even the religious aspects of it. You know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a super regular churchgoer, but I go more than it sounds like either of you two do, especially now at this point in my life. And I do love a good Christmas Eve service. You know, there's always some good music, some good, some good fun. And, uh, and I do like that aspect of the holiday without feeling it's overwhelmingly important to me. So that is a way too long explanation. No, no that's exactly <laughs> my right. Relationship. <laughs> exactly no, the right length. Actually, and I want to I want to make it longer because I want to I want to follow up. So you mentioned the melancholy thing, which is an important theme I think of mm-hmm. the Charlie Brown Christmas, which is the movie we're talking about today. I mean, it starts with Charlie Brown saying that I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. What for you was the feeling of melancholy that you associated with Christmas? Was it just because of the issues that you were having with your family or was it something different as well? It was it was a combination of a bunch of things. I mean, I think being um a trans person, which I am, hi everyone. Uh <laughs> in when you are especially entering adolescence, there's an intense mm. sense of melancholy of being ripped from this life you should have led. Mm. And some of that's just like blinding terror, you know, like my favorite movie uh, from a lot of those years was The Exorcist, which is a movie about a teenage girl who's invaded by a male presence and forced against her will to like change into this evil monstrosity. And I wonder why I related to that so heavily. <laughs> um, but, you know, Christmas, like there was this deep sadness within me. I, I actually have a lot of people after I came out, uh, this woman wrote me this very nice email Um, That was like, I used to love your writing at the AV club, but it always had this immense well of deep sadness beneath it. And now it's just such a joy to see you being joyful and happy and whatever. And I did not perceive that at the time. Like I wasn't sitting there at the AV club being like, well, you know, I need to express the deep sadness that exists in reality. But 
it certainly would bubble up around Christmas when I would be like, I am a year further away from the person I was supposed to be. And I don't know what that means. And I'm not going to examine it, but this is the end of another year. I'm looking back on my life and feeling like something got terribly off track somewhere. And I think Hmm. that melancholy, the melancholy that drives the best Christmas stories, as far as I'm concerned, uh, or even the best winter stories, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, because we're like really invested in this notion of endings, of things dying and being reborn and all of that. Like, I think that that is something I was really tapped into around Christmas. This idea that like, it's the darkest time of year here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the time of year when we are all, you know, compelled to come together and try to make more light. And I think that really spoke to me. So yeah, I I always viewed the best Christmas stories as being a little bit sad. And I have to say, I've become slightly grinchy about this idea that like our best Christmas stories are happy and fun and light. And Mm -hmm. we have, you know, this wonderful relationship with, with love and, and just the joy of the holiday. Um, yeah, I, I, I struggle to, to see that because I think there's something so tied into mortality (laughs) about Christmas. Like there was this tradition in Victorian England of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. And of course there was, because this is a time of year when we are talking about death, when we are thinking about the end of things, when we are thinking about people who are no longer with us or people we wish could be with us or whatever. Mm -hmm. It is a way of marking time in the way no other holiday is um i i've talked about this on some other podcast i think spirits but um most of the great holidays at their core there's something about dying <laughs> like like it, like looking at the fact that we are not we only have so long on this planet and we are not all going to be together all of the time you know halloween is obviously forthrightly about that but like you really have to kind of get down to valentine's day before you get to something that's just like and even Valentine's Day is about like, we have limited amounts of time to spend with the person we love, and okay. maybe we should make the most of those, you know? I think that the thing that you're, you're saying here, Emily, that I really, that, lo- that I lock into in particular, is that I love redemption stories. Mm-hmm. So, and I think the best Christmas stories are often those of redemption. I mean, all the, the yeah. m- most of the famous Christmas stories are all redemption stories. Um, and I think that that, idea i never really thought about why that would be i just know you know it is the case that there often are but why is that well one reason that you give is that yeah it's the end of the year where it's time to reflect on what happened and make amends new year's is coming so we can make our amends for the for the next year and that that sort of thing but i also think that you're right there's something about it being real cold mm-hmm. that like prompts yeah. this, this this need to you know, you're at you're at a weak point in your life when you're cold. Nobody is happy. I'm not happy when I'm cold. <laughs> tell you that, but I don't. You know, you're weak and you're vulnerable when you're cold. Yeah. And what can make you warm? Other people, right? Yeah. Other people are humans. Are the other thing that make you warm. And so you need that. You're you're sort of like okay, fine. I'll I'll give in to this 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 human urge that I have to be with other people <laughs> to be together to to you know to. I recognize that I need these people right in my life um, to help me like light the fire and so on. And I think that's really, really interesting. The, partly because it's interesting to me because 
one, I love redemption stories, but two, I never really locked into Christmas stories that much. And it's mm. interesting that I never put those two things together. So I think I'm having a revelation right now that I'm <laughs> that I'm thinking, wait, why is that? I, I don't totally know. But anyway, I loved what you said because I think that that, I don't know, it unlocked something for me. Yeah. It's really, first of all, I love being cold, which is why I live in California. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in Southern California. Um, you bringing up the cold thing is interesting because so many of these stories are drafting off of a Christmas Carol. You know, they're inversions mm-hmm. of a Christmas Carol or they're like remixes of a Christmas Carol, even Charlie Brown Christmas, I would argue. And the center of that story is Scrooge goes home at night and it's cold and he doesn't have want to waste coal and he is embracing the cold. And that is a uh, sensory symbolism of his heart and then you know he lets other people in and then it's warm and wonderful and he brings a turkey to the cratchits and there is something there that just the core of it is about yeah i'm all alone and i'm cold but now i'm surrounded by people and i'm warm i grew up celebrating texas celebrating christmas in texas now i'm just thinking about my relationship to the cold and i love so much about christmas and partly i love the romanticism of like making a snowman and having a snowball fight stuff i didn't actually do as a kid but looked super duper fun in cartoons (laughs) and if it did snow a little bit it was so exciting you know we'd like be like we have a white christmas you have to like you know basically scrape a half inch of of snow off the entire yard to make like a two-foot snowman (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but I, I loved the idea of a white Christmas, but that is interesting that like you can maybe divide up your Christmas movies and Christmas TV shows by like the, the super cheerful ones that pretend like being cold is really fun. And the ones that are being like cold, it's cold in your bones and it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, like Scrooge, but cause yeah, now that I live in the cold, it's tougher than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. <laughs> no, I, I like a lot of it. I do. I just, um, we were outside a lot, me and my son, um, you know, COVID reasons and such. And I was like, this is going to be fine. We're going to bundle up and we're going to just keep playing outside. And then yesterday it was 30 degrees and I had all my winter stuff on and I was like, I'm still cold. <laughs> like I can't keep it out. It's hard. Um <laughs> But I still, but yet still when it snows, I feel like I feel that magic every single time. I I just, it like takes my breath away when it's like at that hush sound of everything kind of dampened and Mm. and the snow's falling down in big, big chunks. I love that. I always love that. It is also true that that, that oftentimes Christmas falls around the... first or second snow of the year when it's so still it's, cute when it's cute and, yeah. <laughs> and, but in february when it's snowing and it's all dirty and no and, dude in yeah. april when it's still snowing well, yeah. you're like we're still doing this <laughs> yeah. It, yeah i do think like I, I do think like the one movie that presents like late winter super well is groundhog day mm-hmm. where day. it's just yeah. like stepping in the the puddle of yeah. whatever you know because <laughs> yeah. like that is absolute that is how snow feels starting january 2nd <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. You just want it for the white Christmas and then you're like, okay, like we did it. Uh, we're, we're done with that. But I, besides the snow part that I didn't actually experience as a kid that I thought I would love as a kid, I love all the sensory stuff of Christmas as I, as I alluded to before. I love the smell of cinnamon and cloves and oranges, anything Christmas scented, I'm a sucker for. My mom had like a Christmas potpourri she brought out every year. Do people still make do potpourri? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Do you? Do I it? feel like it's. 
I feel like it's candles now. Like I'm it, holding, I'm holding up my my Fraser fur candle from uh, Times, which mm-hmm. is that's a good one. Which, it's gorgeous, but also like I burnt it a couple days ago, and it has lingered for like all week, and yep. it's wonderful. But yep. also, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the candles are more effective than potpourri because I had to really yes. put my whole face in it. I feel like I would come home from school and just like put my face in that potpourri and smell it. I loved it so much. My mom only brought it out for like once a year, um, and it was like a orangey cinnamon. I love the sound of a fire. My mom always insisted on having a fire, even if it was like 70 degrees in Texas. <laughs> she's like, we have to have a fire on Christmas Eve. Like yeah. she came from Indiana and like, that's yeah. the rules. Um, I love the smell of pine, even though we had an artificial tree growing up. Cause again, it's Texas. <laughs> um, I, I love like carols and jingle bells and every like sensory experience, cookies, baking, all of it. Like I just it brings back like a whole body nostalgia for me. Can I ask you another can I ask you a follow up on that, Laura? Yeah. So did you also a big part of for me the 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 feeling I associate with Christmas is the gathering of people. Like just get together with family and that sort of thing. And I know yeah. you don't have as big a family as, as I do, but no. I mean was that also a part of it? Like the getting together with your extended family? Yeah. So my grandmother would come from Indiana Indiana every Christmas. I think my mom and my grandmother spent literally every Christmas together. Um, maybe like almost until the end of her life, I believe. Um because that's like a major theme, I think, of this movie. Yeah. Right? Uh that mm-hmm. Charlie Brown Christmas, which are we which where is the movie we're talking about today? Day. Yes. yes, Charlie Brown Christmas. It's Thank a movie about Charlie Brown who's <laughs> struggling to find the Christmas spirit. And I think what's so interesting is that it's it's Lucy actually who helps sort of set him on a path. And mm-hmm. then what she says yeah. is she says, You need involvement. You need to get involved in some real Christmas project. How would you like to be the director of our Christmas play? That I think is really interesting because I think she's on the one hand right that that is a way to get involved. But, you know, to to get some Christmas spirit is to actually just do some Christmassy activity. But I think it's interesting, too, that it's a community activity. And I hadn't mm-hmm. really thought of it from this perspective until, Emily, you were saying the things you were saying about, yeah, it's like Christmas like drives us together in a way, you know, to, to maybe even just for the basic reason of needing to stay warm. Um, but uh, but it, but it's this idea of now you have to be uh, recognize that you're a member of a community and you have to derive something from that. But I think what's also interesting about this, and I'm curious what you think about this, Emily, is that by doing that, he takes on all these new issues. He confronts mm-hmm. all these new issues. Yeah. Namely, he starts getting judged by them. Right. Right. He, yeah. they, they judge his artistic choices. Like he brings in the tree and it's all floppy and they're like, mm, that tree sucks. You're a blockhead. <laughs> so in a way, by choosing to be a part of a community, he opens himself up for that kind of criticism which I think that illustrates also the perils of being a member of a community. That <laughs> Sorry, that's exactly your line from Midsummer. The perils of community. <laughs> Damn it, really? <laughs> Am I just saying the same shit that I said? I don't even remember well, saying that. I think, I think literally like all of my favorite stories, almost all, I'm sure there are others that aren't, but are about the tensions of longing for community and also seeing the shortcomings of community Mm -hmm. like this is a total tangent but i love the toy story movies and they're about Mm -hmm. that they're about like what if i had what if i had this community i was a part of 
But then anxiety over, what if I lost my status within that community? That would be bad. It is very important to me that I, as an individual, maintain this space within the community. And like my two favorite Christmas stories are Charlie Brown Christmas and um, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm -hmm. And those are very much both about like, I am a part of this community, but I also hate being part of this community. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I think that's true with the fam with like the the focus on family too at Christmas time. We all want to yeah. be together with our family until yeah. we're like in a room together and with our family for like three days where we don't go outside and we just eat a lot of food and look at each other. And then, you know, you start to remember that uncle so-and-so like drives you nuts or whatever yeah. it is. Like it's like yeah. it's better in theory than in real life. <laughs> My wife it comes from a very large family, and her like ideal expression of Christmas is we all get together. And everyone's chattering and being loud. And she sits in the next room over in the dark and just listens to it and hears it going on. And like, that's such an evocative expression of a certain kind of Christmas Mm -hmm. that I think this special captures that like a lot of other things don't. It just this idea of being outside of Christmas that I think we've all felt and have taken comfort in even. And there's a nostalgia there for that. Um, I think a lot about um, one of my favorite Christmas music bloggers used to write about how he loved when everyone had gone to bed and he would lay under the tree and look up at the lights from beneath. And that's just like, as you were talking about sensory things, Laura, I think this is the holiday that has the most sensory stuff attached to it. Mm -hmm. It's like this and then Halloween and then nothing else is really even close. And like, some of that's just, you know, our pop culture and how we uh, understand this through commercialism. And some of it is like, we have been celebrating this time of year as long as there have been human beings, because we know this is like the pit and we got to climb back out of it. Mm-hmm. And like, that is a, that's a powerful thing. Like there is, there is a reason we come up with these traditions. They serve almost as like, as exemplars of like the fact that things aren't going to be this bad forever. So that also ties into with, for me, what I get out of Christmas, which is, I don't know how much I enjoy the actual hanging out with everyone in Christmas, but I like remembering, I like reflecting on it. I like when it's over and I like thinking Mm -hmm. about, Oh, that was nice. I have these, all these nostalgic memories of the music playing and the fire going and the crowd of people and the din of conversation of which I was, sometimes a part of and sometimes not. Um, and I I like reflecting on that. I don't know if I like being in it that much. When I'm in it, if it's like stressful because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I've got to appease the people who I'm engaged in conversation with. And I don't know how to talk to these older family members, uh, you know? And, and anyway, so I, I find it stressful when I'm there, but then I like it uh, like later. And maybe that's like just me in general, because I think that's probably true about every event in my life is, I dread it having, you know, having it happen. And then I love the fact that it happened. But yeah. And you also always enjoy stuff at a remove, like your version of what about of what Emily's wife Libby does is like when we go to a wedding, you're the film, you're the filmographer. You can watch it at a distance, you know, and like take it in that way and and enjoy it in a different kind of way. Um, But I was thinking about like that, that feeling of liking it, looking back on it, but not necessarily in the moment. I mean, that's also I feel like true for a lot of people of their childhood. Right. And that's what's so amazing about about Schultz and Peanuts is like we all think uh, not we all. I won't speak for other people about how their how their relationship with their childhood is. But I 
have so many happy memories of my childhood. But also, like, if I really think back to what it was like to be a kid, it was really hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's tumultuous and painful. And you have you're going through so much and you feel so powerless. But yet, as an adult, when we look back on it, oftentimes we're like, look how carefree that time was. I had I didn't have to worry about my rent. <laughs> You know, I just ate candy all day and like, (laughs) you know, but it wasn't like that at all as a kid. And like, that's, you know, the Peanuts characters are, are, they're going through it. Yeah. He's depressed. I have this thought a lot with, um, writing when people write criticism about, um, stories about adolescence, they're often like, no teenager talks this way. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you are projecting your thoughts on teenagers right now who don't want to talk to you (laughs) onto like. (laughs) who you were as a teenager. When you were a teenager, you had the most sophisticated conversations with other teenagers. It's Mm -hmm. just when your parents came in and were like, hey, let's talk about, you know, I don't know, uh, Sartre. You were like, no, I don't want to do that. I only do that with Jamie. Yeah. That's that's our thing, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. That's, no, that's a great point. I mean, it's, there's, there's spaces which, in which it's safe to have those discussions and Mm -hmm. typically with adults, those are not those discussions. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I felt that. I mean, I often feel like when I enter into a conversation with someone, the problem for me is like, I never, this is a total tangent, but the problem for me is like, I never know what's presupposed in the conversation. So I'm often sitting there like, what is an acceptable topic of discussion (laughs) that doesn't require that I explain 700 paragraphs of like information that you need to have in order to begin to have this discussion. And so then I just end up saying like, uh, it's pretty cold. (laughs) And then you're like, yep, that's cold. Actually, I, if I may just, I'm going to probably cut this, but I did, ha- I, um, this just popped into my mind. Um, my but keeping my, it all in, it's keep it all in, but I didn't, this is a total, uh, this is a total humble break, but I did that actually with Noam Chomsky in the elevator once because <laughs> he, 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 he and I, we, keeping it in <laughs> our offices were across the hall from each other. And we were, um, this was before he left MIT and, and, um, we rode the elevator a few times. And one time we rode the elevator and it was just me and him. And I, I was like, Oh fuck, that's Chomsky. I better say something. And so I just said, uh, it's pretty cold. And he was like, yep. <laughs> I don't know what the fucking say to Chomsky. I was like, this is this is uh, so embarrassing. But anyway. Um, I think you did a great job. Oh, that's thank a, you. That's thank acceptable you. elevator talk. <sighs> yeah. Better better than to be like, well, in this paper where you no, wrote 50 years yeah, ago. Yeah, he didn't want that. He yeah. didn't want that. No, no, Actually, no. Knowing Chomsky, he probably would have preferred that. <laughs> but I, I didn't have it before in my mind. Um, I freaked out. But uh, the other thing you said, Emily, that I thought was super interesting is the... Th- that okay it's the darkest time of the year right mm-hmm. and spirits are low and you know charlie brown maybe having seasonal affective disorder maybe maybe not i'm not sure what why he's down in this moment he seems to be always down i i definitely get that a little bit of seasonal affective disorder i'm always popping you know um vitamin d i actually I kind of in some sense have sad all the time because i never go outside so mm-hmm. i gotta be you know, always eating the uh, vitamin D and having yeah. the sun lamp on. Personal problem. <laughs> but uh, uh, but what we do to deal with this incredibly dark time, cold time, is community is one thing. But the other thing, which is the flip side of the coin, is is religion, right? Religion mm-hmm. provides that lift, that boost. It's It's both through the community that religion provides, but also through the hope that religion provides us that things will get better. I do think there is something to the idea that fundamentally gathering with a bunch of people, especially across generations, has a religious aspect to it, Mm. even if you are not sitting there and saying, 
you know, worshiping God or whomever, you know, even if it's just a family gathering, there is an element of religious practice to it because there's there's ritual, there's there's a feeling of camaraderie, there's a feeling of something bigger than yourself that exists within that space. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, I don't know. I went to a rock concert once and I was like, it was a, a Bruce Springsteen concert. This is like 10 years ago. And I was like, this is the closest I've ever felt to how it felt to go to church when I was seven or eight. And it's just because yeah. I was with so many people and we were all focused on the same thing and all thinking about the same thing and all, you know, celebrating the same thing. And I think that that is, I think there's something intrinsic to that, that, and I'm wondering there's sort of a chicken egg quality to this, but there is something intrinsic to that, that as we have become more isolated from each other and as religion has become less of a part of the public sphere, those two things feed into each other where like we no longer have real reasons to gather together which kills religious spirit, but also kills this fundamental thing we have where we like need each other to provide that thing that isn't any of us, but is all of us at once that we used to call God. And now we could call whatever, but we don't have a connection to that anymore. Yeah. That's super interesting that it, but the key thing is a recognition that there's something beyond you. I think that's really, that's the key thing. And I think that's really, really, really interesting. I mean, I think that ties in with, so one of the parts of this movie that marked it as, and you guys should to say more about this because I don't know much about the making of this movie, but th- you know that the movie has a recitation of the Annunciation of to the Shepherds, which is a mm-hmm. passage from the Bible, and th- that, as far as I could tell, that was unique at the time and remains unique. Like you know, mainstream television and films do not have overtly religious things in them in this way. I mean you know, passion of the Christ notwithstanding, but typically does not have this kind of level of over-religiosity. And it was something that Schultz fought for, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so what do we think of that being in this, you know, so he fought for this passage of the Bible to be recited in the film. And you know, in this film, which, you know, maybe could have done without it in a way, you know, it's all about community and friendship and camaraderie. But then why, why do you think uh, that was important to Schultz? Or what do you think it adds to have that uh, in, in the film? My theory on this is always that religion is presented as one possible reason you might celebrate the holiday but not the only reason. Mm-hmm. And that cuts against the most popular reading of this film, which is among evangelical Christians, which is Linus gives the definitive answer about what Christmas is all about. But if you read this as Linus gives an answer, like, and it is technically true that this holiday stems from this story that is important to Christianity. If you, you know, if you read it as this is an answer and it's maybe a more vital one than, you know, the commercialism that pervades the rest of the special or the, you know, the forced cheer of being around people and like sniping at each other. That is another part of this special, but it doesn't ever end there. You know, it, it ends with Charlie Brown being like, okay, this is deeper than the commercial aspects of the holiday. I'm going to take my tree and leave. Um, and he walks out and decorates it. And he, but then importantly, he doesn't actually have the spirit of Christmas. He like kills the tree, you know, <laughs> he thinks he's killed it. And what takes, what it takes to sort of find his way back to himself and to his community is for everyone to gather together and do this thing together and perform this ritual together and then sing a song together 
And yeah, the song's a religious song, but the the core of the special is if you are gathered with your community in a way where you're all benefiting each other, that's the spirit of Christmas. It's not, you know, a hollow religious recitation because the thing I've always pointed out is early in the special, Linus is struggling to memorize his line for the Christmas play. And it sure seems like that's what he says to Charlie Brown. So I'd never have thought that this presents that as the only answer. And some of that stems from Schultz's relationship to religion, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But a lot of it is just like how story structure works. So <laughs> yeah, the ultimate answer is community. And but importantly, community that is supportive and loving and works together to achieve great ends. I love that. I also think though that it's interesting that the the annunciation is the announcement of the birth of Christ and that you could think of that as like, oh, Christ is this incredibly important person. This is this is such an important news. The Savior has come. But another way to think of it is, okay, Christ isn't an, an important. He's just a baby. But we're still important. We care about babies, even if they're not the saviors. Why do we care about babies? Because they remind us that life goes on. That like even in our darkest moments, humanity will go on. There'll be yeah. humans after us that will carry on our projects into the future. That, you know, our interests will be you know, promoted and will be remembered and our family will be, you know, cared for. And that our problem, another way to think of it is also our problems are not just our problems. We're part of this bigger, you know, project, this life project of humanity. And we're just doing our little bit. And then we could think of it like, oh man, my suffering is bad, but you know, in the bigger scheme of things in humanity as a whole, maybe it's actually not that bad. Like I'm shouldering my burden, other people's are shouldering theirs. And so that's a that's a secular reading of the Linus passage. And like symbolically speaking, babies are fragile. We know that we have to protect them if they're going to make it to adulthood and continue the species or whatever, however you want to put it. And like the central core of this story, which is not unique among religions, but like there aren't a lot of religions where that are like, this is what our God was like as a baby. Um, (laughs) The central core of this story is like the savior of mankind was once a baby who needed to be protected. Interesting. These various people were part of protecting him. Like literally a couple of chapters later, there's a bit about um, um, Joseph and Mary having to flee with the child because King Herod's coming to kill baby Jesus. And like so much of those early chapters is about, you know, babies babies die really easily <laughs> and like it is interesting that for the religion of christianity like the central figure in it is depicted at first as incredibly fragile and breakable because i do think it 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 resonates with the fact that the the other central holiday of christianity is about him dying yeah well in in actually emily that ties in with your point before about community that we are in a community with with god because we are the raisers of, in some sense, God, right? Mm-hmm. Because of God, mm-hmm. in terms of God's physical manifestation on the planet. So it's not like God is just this entity that exists out, you know, outside of us and doesn't care about us. Uh, it, but God is actually enmeshed in our lives in the sense of not just affecting us, but we affect God. We are needed to promote God's survival, but also God's ends on the planet. And that's actually a theme that a lot of I'm not Christian, but a lot of I should just say, because so I'm about to say some I think, stuff. I think you made that clear. No, earlier. but I'm about to say, I, I'm not that I want to be associated. It's not that I don't want to be associated with this, but just that I I don't necessarily am not the expert here. But yeah. a theme that many I Christians. Actually, I had thought you were the Pope. That's why I'm on the show. <laughs> 
Was it the hat, Emily? Was it that? Was it the long hat and the yeah. and the car yeah. running? So listen, no one has actually seen video of this, but Justin does wear a long conical hat in every. Yes. And I was like, it's kind of weird that he's married, but like. <laughs> I'm not saying anything because I'm not. He's Catholic. always like bumping it on door frames and stuff. It's yeah. very inconvenient. It's totally inconvenient. But but um, <laughs> but I was thinking people who are Christians who tell me these things, they say things like, "We are the people who promote God's plan." Right? Like it's not like you just sit back and chill and God does everything for you. Like you're an active participant in that plan, and that's you know I never really thought of it from the perspective of like we have to raise God, <laughs> like we're God's parents in a way, in as much as He's our parents. Uh, that's fascinating. That's real fascinating, especially coming from the perspective of two people with uh, a two-year-old who acts like God. <laughs> and you like, the thing is, you don't know if he's going to be Jesus, you know? <laughs> you don't actually know that. That's you know? true. Although nobody came to give us frankincense or myrrh, and I'm still pissed about it. Yeah. So. Oh, God, you didn't get that? <laughs> no, I nailed nobody it. Did. Yeah. No, I <laughs> Uh, uh, baby was Emily. Can you confirm? Was Baby Jesus really into the movie Tenet? <laughs> Listen, I wasn't going to bring this up because I, I. Well, I've heard about this from from, from firsthand sources. Yeah. I just listen, listen. I love. I love that there is a child who's obsessed with the movie Tenet, and I love that I am like secondhand connected to that child. It is. It is wonderful. Um. And yes, I, the baby Jesus was very much into the movie Tenet and would shout, get to the turnstile and um, uh, play the score ad nauseum. Ad yeah, nauseum. that's that's yeah. how they knew he was the savior because he understood what a temporal pincer movement was the first time he watched it. <laughs> I just want to say, Laura sent me a screen cap of her Spotify wrapped that had Rainy Night in Talon, the first song from the Tenet soundtrack. <laughs> And how often she'd listen to it. She was like, this seems low. And I did the calculation. Thank you for doing that for me. You listen, you have listened to that song for 29 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that doesn't count 747 turnstile. I'm just listing other tracks on that. <laughs> that trucks in through. place. Trucks in place. Retrieving the, ca- retrieving the cast. Retrieving the case. He calls it retrieving the cast. Retrieving the case. So. Oof. Yeah. It's been a long I, year. Yeah. So Baby <laughs> Jesus is not a tenant. That's the that's definitely got to be in one of the like central pieces of liturgy now. Yeah. That's um, Luke definitely mentions mm-hmm, it a couple times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> listen, listen. I mean all all that the gospels are about are about how the disciples were all bros and tenant is just about how the two main characters are bros. So there you go. Best buds. That's right. <laughs> They're the people protecting the world from what might have been and that's grotesque. Has he said that line? Uh, no, he can't speak that much English, but yeah. it's coming. It's coming. We, it's, <laughs> oh my God, we we got to stop this tangent because we we could tell you a lot of wild things, which will make us come across as terrible parents. But mm-hmm. um, we'll do it off mic. We'll do it yeah. Off mic. <laughs> um, okay. I want to ask you guys another thing. Uh-huh. So there's like a cynical take on the Charlie Brown special, which is okay. So after just to continue the the plot here, after Charlie Brown brings his dilapidated tree and he puts a bobble on it and it falls, and he's like, "Oh man, my tree sucks," and then he walks off. Um, then Linus says, "Oh, you know, it just needs a bit of it needs a bit of care, love, and attention." And and they wrap it up and they dress it up and so on. And Charlie Brown comes back and everything is good. I was wondering, like, here's a cynical read on this. Mm-hmm. I feel like now we've just reintroduced all that capitalistic. We've gussied up this tree, which had character, and made it look like all the other aluminum trees. 
and it's just kind of like a hellhole again. So <laughs> like, I don't know, does that, does that resonate with you guys? I kind of felt like I wouldn't feel good about that necessarily. I would have felt like my treatness became homogenized. Well, okay, I did. It did cross my mind because he takes the stuff. So Snoopy has decorated his doghouse, and Charlie Brown is lamenting that even my dog has gone commercial. Uh, and then it's the very same baubles and lights yeah. that end up on the tree yeah. that they all sing around at the end. But it's the intention that's the important part, right? Because Snoopy was decorating his tree for to find out. You know, it says find the true meaning of Christmas: money, money, money. Was, it was true. a contest, That's true. That's right? True. He was yeah. like in it for financial gain and showiness. And, you know, and, and when they decorate the tree, it's to uplift, uh, you know, a mm. small scraggly little tree who deserves some love and wants to feel beautiful. I don't think there's anything wrong with Christmas baubles if it's got the right spirit behind it. And, you know, they all gather together to uplift not only the tree, but Charlie Brown and sing together in community. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with all the the trappings, you know, of Christmas when he comes with the right spirit. Okay. It. That's, okay. That's my feeling on it. There's this famous story by C.S. Lewis that's like, it's called um, The Great Divorce. And it is basically uh, somebody goes to hell and it's a huge banquet. and uh, But the spoons are too long for anyone to eat food. <laughs> and then they go to heaven and it's a replica. But the spoons are being used by everyone to feed each other. Mm. And ah. therefore... Like it's, it's the idea that like everything is like how you frame it, how you use these things to help each other. And like, that was a story that was very popular in my like evangelical Christian community. But I was like, I feel like you guys are kind of missing the point because it is, it's very much about how like the kingdom of heaven in Christianity is about helping each other. It is not about your own reward. It is about creating a community where everyone cares for each other. And I think the end of this special is similar to that. And uh, I think, Laura, your point is, is fantastic. It's just like, yeah, these trappings, we should feel cynical about them, but that doesn't mean they can't be used for better purposes of bringing people together and creating things, you know? Um, decorating the tree is a is a is a beautiful ritual of remembering family and being together and remembering when this ornament went up and this ornament went up and like yeah i think that there is something in there of like yes all of these things are commercial products but they have the meaning that we bring to them and then of course there's the ornament that your kid made when you know they were seven or whatever or the ornament that you uh got passed down from your grandmother so there is like there's this combination of crass commercialism and sentimentality and like genuine emotion that collides around Christmas. And I think there's really nothing like it. And I think that's why we can't quite ditch the holiday in the way that we kind of have Easter. Like Easter is still important, mm. but it is not as central to American culture as it was even when I was a kid. But we can't get rid of Christmas because it's this weird collision of emotions. We don't have it any other mm -hmm. time of the year. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I like I like those I like those lines. I mean, here here was the here was the thought that I had, but I think you guys are I think I you know I'm happy to concede this point. Um, but the thought I had was, well, why couldn't they just be like, hey, Charlie Brown? You know, we realized that you actually picked a tree that represents something important to you, and then we thought we find that really cool too, right? And so just celebrating his decision to pick the most unique looking tree rather than say oh we'll we'll with the best intentions make your tree look like all the others i don't know 
Anyway, that was the thought I had. I hear you. Did you know that you can buy those Charlie Brown trees now? The Which, like loopy the, ones? The little sad ones. Yeah, yeah with one little, with yeah. one bobble that's like too heavy. Um, which, of course, is a commercial item you can buy and merch that has like spun off from this special, but also kind of cool that you can get yourself a little, a little scraggly Charlie Brown tree. You love to see the way that capitalism will, uh, oh, yeah. in, will manipulate and uh, subvert even crit- critiques of capitalism. Yep. Yes, yes, no, of yeah. course. It's, it's impossible. <laughs> you know, it's, it's inescapable. Um, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Charles Schultz then, because yeah. I don't know anything about Charles Schultz, but I'll just say this uh, to kick us off. I spent some time in Santa Rosa where Charles Schultz lived at the later part of his life, and I skated in the Charles Schultz ice rink, and there are little Charlie Brown statues all over Santa Rosa, and so we knew that there this was, you know, Charles Schultz's hangout zone. Um but I don't know anything about him as a person, and I, I I was not a reader of the Peanut Peanuts uh, comic strip growing up. So tell me tell tell me some about Charles Schultz and like how we got to having this special on TV, which is a pretty big thing. I just want to start by saying that if you visit the um, Charles Schultz Museum where they've replicated his or it burned down actually last year, so I don't know if they've still replicated this replicated his studio. It does say above the studio, "This is the Charles Schultz Hangout Zone." Like that was what he called it. So. Uh, <laughs> That <laughs> uh, was a, it's a wonderful museum. I hope that they were able to preserve a lot of the um, the art and things like that. Charles Schultz is a fascinating, tricky guy, and I think Peanuts is one of the great works of American art. Um, it's I love I love comic strips because they're the art form that is the most interested in time. They're the same every day for spans of decades. Peanuts ran for 50 years. Charles Schultz drew all 50 of those years. Legitimately, the run from 1954 to 1974 is fantastic and is like, that's 20 years of like great American expressionist art. And like, He is, he's one of those figures where like, I wouldn't say it's a thing where you have to like separate the art from the artist because while he was frequently kind of a bad person, it was within the bounds of like what we consider acceptable badness, you know, like he was kind of mean to his wife when they were divorcing, that sort of thing where you're like, this isn't great, but I'll allow it, (laughs) you know? Um, But the thing about that I find fascinating about him in regards to this special is there's this great uh, biography called um, Schultz and Peanuts by David McCallis. Um, And he uh, pointed out a lot of ways in which Schultz mirrored his life in the strip, especially through Charlie Brown um, and especially through Snoopy. And actually the like the entry entry point character kind of changes as the strip runs and he becomes more successful and like a little bit more disconnected from reality. But his religion is really tough to pin down. I would say he's kind of what I'd call a Minnesota Lutheran, which is like, he goes to church, but that's because it's culturally expected of him. Does he actually believe all of it? He'll say he does. But like, when he's pushed on this point, especially late in life about like his religious beliefs, he's like much more like, I think he says openly in one interview, I'm more of a secular humanist. He's just like, I don't know if I believe all of this, but I believe in the ritual of going to church, of of being around people. And that push and pull between, you know, what he feels he should believe and like what he actually believes animates a lot of his work around religion. The one consistent thing is that he finds proselytization annoying, Mm -hmm. unnecessary, and um, boundary 
you know, going beyond what acceptable boundaries are. He frequently calls that out in his strips. He's very much like, you know what, if you want to believe in religion, cool. Christianity is the religious tradition I grew up in, so I understand it. So I'm going to make jokes about it. But his characters would never, there's this, this um, um, string of Archie comics where the Archie characters were licensed out to a Christian publisher and a guy who drew Archie comics, drew a bunch of comics where the Archie characters are like, you got to accept Christ and Christ into your heart. And Charles Schultz never would have done that, you know, for as much (laughs) as he like licensed the Peanuts characters, Mm -hmm. he had a very complicated relationship with religion. And that's why it sort of irks me that this special has been just sort of boiled down to, well, it's about how Jesus is the reason for the season. A, it's not again, just on story structure rules and B like, it minimizes this guy's complicated relationship with what was clearly an important part of his life, but not like a thing that he had uh, completely figured out, even up to his death. So, I don't know. I think I think Peanuts is fantastic, and I would encourage everyone here to you know check out some of the the complete collections, especially from the '60s when it was just really humming on all cylinders. But um, there's a reason these characters who have been watered down and watered down and watered down since his death are still so potent. And it's because they were just like, unlike anything else in American art at the time, like this strip was initially popular with like beatniks because it was very much about the futility of life and like Mm. how depressing everything is. And, you know, if they were quoting the Bible, they were like quoting Job. It's it's such a unique, interesting <laughs> thing. And I, 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 I wish that people knew it for more than just like Snoopy plush toys said yeah. the woman who has a Snoopy plush toy in her office. So uh, yeah, we got yeah. one of those too. No, yeah, no harm at that. I mean, yeah, I don't know why I never got into it. Weirdly. I think I just don't read comics. So that it feels been- like a you thing because the center of it is Charlie Brown being like existence kind of stinks. Let's talk about that. And everyone else like having a different answer for that. Like it is literally like a philosophical discussion held over like 50 years of comics. Hmm. And toward the end, it gets, you know, it peters off. But it is definitely like Linus has a different answer for why existence stinks. And Lucy has a different answer. And Sally has a different answer. And Snoopy has the answer of like, well, you need to just ignore that and have fun. And like <laughs> yeah. they're all valid answers. And that's yeah. what I love about it. Oh, that's so, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to order the, you know, anthology. You've inspired us. We're going to get yeah. this anthology now. Yeah. Emily, do you have a favorite Peanuts comic strip? Oh my gosh. There's um there's one I love where Charlie Brown is about to um throw a pitch at a baseball game. And Schroeder, the catcher, comes up and is like basically like Charlie, you know, Charlie Brown's like, what do you need, Schroeder? And he's like, I've been thinking about suffering. And <laughs> <laughs> as you do. And the other characters come in and slowly they're having this like argument about suffering while Charlie Brown is just trying to play this baseball game. And like, I think it's such a pure distillation <laughs> of everything Schultz was on about. That's the one I usually think of. But one of the things I loved was I think he was really good at like longer stories. And um, there's uh, there's the unrequited love affair between Sally and Linus, where mm-hmm. Sally is just absolutely in love with Linus. I think what Schultz would do with love where all the characters loved someone who didn't love them back was like really fascinating. Um, and I, 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 I turned to that a lot in my own work, especially like we, we were having a, a story meeting for season three of Arden where we're, we've been struggling to crack this particular story and we finally did. But like part of the conversation there was me being like, why don't we just do the peanuts thing where everybody's in love with somebody else and they don't love them. And it's just such a, such a unique way 
especially in an era when so much Christmas stuff is overly romantic. It's such a unique way to think about, you know, Sally's in love with Linus and Linus is very annoyed by that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I hadn't really thought about that until we started rewatching too. that every, and that's also I, for me, at least how childhood felt like I always, you know, everybody always had a crush on somebody who didn't, who crushed on somebody else who crushed on somebody else. And like, that's how sixth grade was. <laughs> that's just the way the cookie crumbles folks. <laughs> Who was your crush on, Laura? We need uh, to know. This, oh, his name is <laughs> He had a sideways smile. <laughs> this is great. This is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> if you're listening, um, how are you doing? knows who he is, and okay. we talked about it later. Wait, it's you fine. do want me to blank out his name? <laughs> yeah, you might want to. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Make He's me, got, like, kids and stuff. More work for me. He doesn't want me. He doesn't want me. We'll keep the first name. Sorry. Sorry, um, he had a very nice sideways. Yeah. I was clicking around on the Peanuts archive just to find some strips and get a feel for it. And I did find one that I really liked. It's um, it's Snoopy goes to the mailbox and he, he gets a letter and says, Dear, dear contributor, we have received your latest manuscript. Why did you send it to us? <laughs> <laughs> and that feels real to me. Uh, <laughs> so no, the, the flop sweat, the flop sweat of like being like, of course, this is the time they're going to they're going to pick me up and then you know like snoopy captures that so well yeah. like his his writing yeah i i mean i just i love snoopy i think i think he gets kind of a bad rap because he took over the strip and everything uh, you know especially represented the years when it got kind of too disconnected from reality but like fundamentally it's about how sometimes the only way to escape suffering is to just fantasize about other things which is like a totally valid way like mm -hmm. like snoopy is schultz's artistic expression it's a totally valid way to approach the question of why life stinks i don't want to end on that note no <laughs> i mean <laughs> no, it, is, it, it is it is important to engage in imaginative free play um but we're not going to end on the note of life stinking I wanted to know. I thought you were going to ask us about religion, and I was going to sing us some Jesus songs from camp. Yeah, let's oh, sing some let's, Jesus songs. Let's that talk about. Fun. Well, we were talking about religion. Let's let's go for it. So okay, so I was just like, I prepared my Jesus camp stories. What's happening? All right, so <laughs> jump in. I mean, take take the reins and tell us about Jesus. No. I mean, go for it. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you about Jesus. That's ridiculous. no your experience with Jesus. No, oh yeah. Um, well, I mean, I don't know if this like fits into our flow, but I, but yeah, I mean, I think we are now we're all people that were raised Christian in different ways, right? Well, I wasn't um, raised, but I did spend a well, semester at Catholic school. Yes, but I so, think your your folks would identify as Catholic, would they not? I don't know. Loosely. Um, I guess, I'm yeah. Going to, I'm going to interrupt for two seconds Please. to say, listeners, if you just heard someone random say, what the fuck, that's because my wife walked in to bring me my dinner while I was saying, let's sing some Jesus songs. <laughs> and I think she was temporarily horrified. <laughs> we got to get her on the show. Yesterday she was like, "What show are you going on?" I was like, "It's Cows in the Field. It's a really good show. You should come on with me." So we're gonna we're gonna do that sometime. Yeah, yeah. She didn't 100%. want to today. What does so. Libby want to cover? Yeah, let's do it. Oh uh, well, well, okay. That's already. I mean, it's on. <laughs> That's mic, also so booked. It's, it's on mic, so it's booked. <laughs> uh, okay, so tell us about Jesus. Uh, no, I'm not gonna. T I I would. I grew up in um in Texas, as I mentioned, and I grew up Presbyterian, which is like. We're called like the frozen chosen. So we're not necessarily known as the most sort of like wave in the air type of Christians. But also I grew up in Texas. Which so you weren't is, speaking in tongues or anything? No, we were not speaking in tongues. But I also went to G I went to evangelical camp accidentally. Mm. Um, and also like I think all of youth group uh, 
has a kind of evangelical flavor to it, at least yeah. well, mm-hmm. when in Texas. Um, and I, you know, there is this weird thing where like all across the country, everybody knows the lyrics to these, to these songs, uh, not just Jesus songs, but like we did these like dances to Dave Matthews songs that everybody knew. Like it was just like some weird thing where like every church across Texas and Oklahoma knew to do like ski, 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 tree to uh, Dave Matthews song. We all did it in the morning to like rev us up. Mm. <laughs> but it was, I think like there was like a weird thing with religion and Christmas and like just sort of being steep, steeped in it the way I was where it was like both important to me and obvious to me that Christmas should be about Jesus. Mm. And that's the meaning of Christmas. And there was this constant lamentation about how Christmas was not enough about Jesus Mm. and how terrible this was. And yet also like a feeling where I had almost like a a little bit of a a nervous anxiety around being open about that kind of Christianity. Because there was something about the evangelical a t- approach it's very that, out in the open that's out in the open yeah. and that made me uncomfortable very performative like, too. yes yeah. and yeah exactly and i was sort of happy to go to these like summer sessions where we all behind closed doors like waved around and you know and sang songs to jesus but i didn't want to like do it outwardly yeah um and there was even something i think as a high school student i felt like the i when my very like you know quick misreading of the charlie brown special felt like this one was too uh, earnest and like and sort of openly biblical, mm. <laughs> which is maybe why I was more drawn to the Christmas time again. The, Charlie the, Brown, the sequel that was yeah, that was more tongue in cheek um, because I was I was like a little embarrassed about the fact that I like was very Christian and had like a fish ring and a cross necklace and like definitely spent all of my summers doing Jesus camp. Mm. I mean, this explains why you married the Pope. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It does not get more religious than this guy right here sitting next to you. I, uh, I went to Catholic school for a semester and it was, uh, it was a horrible mistake. And my parents, I had, they had to pull me out of the school. Cause you asked too many questions. They got mad at me as I for asking questions and it was weird. I never felt comfortable in a sitting in a pew, um, not just because it's hard, but because <laughs> I never felt <laughs> it's a little bony bum. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I just felt weird. I never, I mean, I've never felt comfortable in a church in my life, but, I, but, but that's again, also because my, my skin burns when it, it comes in contact with holy water. That's true. No, but this is, again, this is the same midsummer conversation though. Yeah, like this is, is you not yeah. wanting to be a part of community and me being very happy to be a community, yeah. Yeah. you know, so much so that like Justin's favorite joke about me is that if I was married to a Christian person, I would be, a, I would also be Christian. Like he, Justin's always like, what do you actually believe? And I'm like, uh. What well, other I feel people like, believe? <laughs> I feel like we should. I feel like we should figure out which religion is actually true on this podcast right now. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> then you will know what you believe, Laura. Then I will finally know what I should uh, believe. Uh, I'm just wanting somebody to tell me what. It to is believe. interesting, though, how much of uh, my own religious beliefs, and I'm I'm curious for you, Emily, if this is similar or different. But my my mine are driven by, or my like lack of religious belief, for that matter, is driven by 
a feeling. Ultimately, it's driven by the very thing, I think, made the antithesis of the very thing that drives people towards religion, which is that feeling of joy in the community. And then that drives them to think, oh, God must exist because I'm having these wonderful experiences. And then it, maybe they look for post hoc rationalizations to justify that. And then they, you know, they find arguments and stuff, or maybe they don't. But for me, it was like I never felt comfortable in that experience, in that community. And I didn't know anything about philosophy at the time. I was asking questions, sure, but I, I didn't know what I believed in. And I probably, if you were to ask me, I believed in God, but I wanted to not believe in God, I think. I think deep down, because I never felt comfortable. It was driven by that feeling. And when I, later on in college, um, fully embraced, you know, non-belief. Yeah, that, that was when you were president of the Satan Club. Hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> that was later. Oh. But uh, that was the Atheist Club, but <laughs> That's yes. what I said. But um, we don't believe in Satan either. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Um but the but it was it was then I actually was a dark period of my life weirdly because I think I I had wanted to not believe in God but actually coming to realize I don't believe in God like to to line up my actual cognitive beliefs with the feeling that I had had was a moment of you know stress. Did it and, feel empty? Yeah, it felt scared. I felt scared because I felt for the first time alone. Mm. Like I really had to embrace that I was alone, right? Because you had like if you're with your atheist club, then you have a community around people that believe well, did not believe. But that that's like well, the that came later. That, that, that came later. It was it was this was right at the beginning of college, and I I, I, I lost the any kind of faith. I maybe yeah. would have said I was agnostic, and then I was like, you know what? No, I don't believe in any of this. This is this is completely absurd. I, at the time, I thought, and and it was yeah, it was this, but it was this feeling of like. Deep isolation. Yeah. Deep isolation. Like Not free just fall. Yeah. From my parents, because I knew my parents believed, and from everyone around me. And um, and, and yeah, I did find community eventually because in college you could find community with anyone. Um, and I came to realize that there's not really I mean, I I probably was mistaken in thinking that I was I, you know, alone or whatever, whatever I felt there in that moment of despair. But it was interesting that it triggered that in me. But I think it is also interesting that it was that the source of it was this feeling of uncomfortableness. But sorry, that was a long way, long-winded way of saying I was curious for you, Emily, like your experience sort of, you know, with religion and sort of falling away from it and coming back to it. Like how how would you how would you describe that? Uh, first of all, uh, Justin, you are a professor. I want to know how many times you have made your students write uh, God is dead as an assignment and had a plucky <laughs> Christian like stand up to prove you wrong. Yeah, I'm not just a professor. I'm a professor of philosophy. And <laughs> and I, <laughs> yes, um, that yeah. happens all the time. Actually, and also, Emily, I will say that movie God's Not Dead is is actually sneakily one of my favorite movies. He sings that song a lot, too. <laughs> It's like so lot. catchy. God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, rolling like a lion. God's not dead. He's surely alive. Yeah, I obviously grew up. I grew up in a church where people spoke in tongues. Like right. I spoke in tongues a lot, and actually, a lot of my falling away from faith started because. This guy would, uh, who was a local TV news anchor, would go around to churches and interpret things other people were saying in tongues. And 
he, uh, I realized because I saw him at two different events. He was at like a big tent revival meeting, and then he was just at my church. And he interpreted what God was saying the same way both times. And it was like, oh, this is a this is a speech he's got mm. figured out. Mm. And for my like eight-year-old brain, that was like, whoa, some of this is made up. It was like when yeah. people figure out that Santa Claus isn't real, you know? And the other thing was I continued to speak in tongues, but there was a time when I was just doing it kind of privately by myself. And I realized I was saying the same things over and over and over again. I was just saying the same combination of syllables. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is just a thing that you can do. I I have a friend who who's an actor and to fall into accents, he does, he starts, he counts, you know, one, two, three, four in the accent he wants to do. And he falls into it eventually. And like, I felt that way about speaking in tongues. I would mm. speak a certain combination of syllables and then like my brain would stop trying to make words. It would just say these things. And I was like, well, this is a trick I'm doing to myself and I have to force myself to do it. So yeah, I had this long period, really most of my adult life when I was still saying I was a Christian, I was still like going to church on Christmas and Easter. But if we're being honest, I didn't believe any of it. You know, I was just like, no, this is not real. This is not true. I, when I hit adolescence, I became so cut off from the faith that had been so important to me. Some of that was the church I was in was very um, religiously abusive and being a trans person in a church in the 80s and 90s was was not a great space to be, especially evangelical church. Um, but I got to my 20s and I just was so disconnected from my fundamental self, which I think is a little more interested in in spirituality than you know, my strictly rational self than a lot of people are, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I wandered through adulthood feeling like I want something to fill this gap inside of myself, but religion doesn't feel right. And I don't know what to do because when I was a kid, the answer was religion. And there was a comfort in that. There was a comfort in knowing the answers. There was a comfort in knowing how the world worked and having that boiled down for you in a way where you were like, well, of course, you know, this is, this is the answer. Jesus is the answer, whatever. And then I discovered estrogen um, and estrogen turned out to be the answer. Like I felt this gap inside of myself refill. I felt myself coming back to myself. And when I came back to myself, there was the faith. Like there was the faith I had had as a kid. And yet it was non-specific. It was not really faith in Jesus anymore. It was faith in this idea that we can be better than we are. That is the core of so many religions. And I decided to sort of express that through Christianity because that's what I'm comfortable with. I found a church here in my neighborhood that's an Episcopalian church that's very progressive, very much like aligned with my values, very accepting of the fact that I'm a trans woman and my wife and I are two women who are married and all of these things, which are not true of the vast majority of churches in this country. And American Christianity has done terrible, terrible things like this week. So mm -hmm. I don't want to downplay that. At the same time, I was getting really into tarot. I was getting really into witchcraft. I was getting really into these, these things that are like very private spiritual practices. And a very good friend of mine who uh, is super into tarot, uh, he said to me once, I just need something that's between me and the universe. And I was like, that's interesting. Like that is an interesting way to think about faith, to think about spirituality. And that's what it's become for me. My religion is something that is between me and the universe. And it is not necessarily about God in the way that I think 
the way I guess I think it should be. I don't know. Episcopalians are so like very, very doubt ridden. If you go into an Episcopal church and say, I don't believe any of this, they're like, thank you and welcome. Yeah, um, <laughs> totally. I found this need for something between me and the universe. And when I do go to church, they have, they, I get way more out of the coffee hour afterward than I do actual church. Because it's the one time in my life I'm talking to people who are in their 70s. I'm talking to people who are, you know, younger than me. I'm talking to people of all different races, sexualities, genders, etc., all gathered here, and we're all talking. We all have different life experiences. And it strikes me that's the societal function the church used to fulfill in American life. And the fact that it is now increasingly uh, writ large within our society, this space that is meant to prop up white male hegemony is a perversion. Like it is a perversion of what that should and could be. And Christianity has been used for that throughout history, but there's, there is this beautiful side of it that I don't want to let go. And it's so much less about God and so much less about Jesus and so much more about, we need spaces where we can come together and say, this is my home. And these are people I can belong with and that's what what church used to fulfill and what it still can fulfill. Anyway, uh, that's my New Year's resolution for 2022 is reinvent religion. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily, what if you, you crack it, let us know. What you're, yeah. Well, I mean, what you're saying, I think, is is I think fascinating, partly because as someone like myself who would outwardly say I don't ever need community ever, I did need community and I found it in the academy. Weirdly, that's mm-hmm. where I found my community was in grad school. And before that, I never had a community. That was the first time I felt like, oh, I'm with my people and I can be myself in this community and be, because we're all weirdos and we're all pursuing our very narrow niche area of interest with such passion that the outside world thinks we've completely lost our minds and yet we all understand each other because we're all doing that together. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about what you said, which I I just want to underscore, is this idea of it's like the community water cooler as well. It's a place of concord. It's a place to like meet, to share ideas, even if you don't all agree, right? Like a lot of these churches, like maybe your Episcopalian church is one where, yeah, maybe atheists go to that church too. And like, you know, everyone's welcome, right? It's a place where, you know, to use a word that has become vilified in, in at least on college campuses, I mean, at least, well, not by people on college campuses, but externally towards people on college campuses, it's a safe space, right? It's a safe space to yeah. try out ideas, to be yourself, to express yourself, and to have a kind of exchange of ideas. And we, if I may just say, part of the reason we did this podcast was to do that very thing. And the fact that we get to do this with you, Emily, is so cool. And so in a weird way, I think these communities are inevitable and they crop up and they, they provide spaces for people to have these discussions because I think that is an essential feature of us as humans, this need to express ourselves, not just artistically, but express our ideas. I think that's the thing that... I talk, I joke about, yeah, I could go in the matrix and I'd be perfectly fine. But that's the part that I think I would miss is, is, is being able to have that meeting, sort of that pure meeting of the minds. Now, maybe you can have that in the matrix. And if I can, then I'm good. But uh, that's the thing <laughs> that I think I, I, I need most of all in a community. Yeah. It, I mean, and I think you're right that they do crop up everywhere and you can build community around so many things, but it's also so, so, so fragile. I keep 
circling back to our midsummer conversation. But you know what Emily said about like Christianity has done horrible things or people in the name of Christianity have done horrible things this week. That was the tension that I felt, you know, because I was I was flip about my about growing up, uh, you know, uh, and as a Christian, but I loved my church and I loved the people in my church. I loved my specific church and my specific community. And I always had an uncomfortableness about uh, around people that had the same sort of label as me and thought very differently differently than me and oppressed people and were you know I considered evil in some ways and I and I, there was like this this anxiety I had about about that about like sort of the larger church larger community of of people who call themselves Christians and the different flavors of that um but I also had this sort of anxiety about the fact that like I loved all these people around me and then around you know around my senior year of high school I I actually started to lose my actual faith in in God and I still wanted to be a part of that community and I it felt like it was like this horrible secret because I was like well can I still be a part of this community if the thing that we that draws us all together, we're all sort of are we all assuming we have a baseline of belief here? And if I'm not a part of that, can I still be here? Is that still authentic? Um, it's a fragile thing, <laughs> you know, bringing pe- all these people together around something you want need some commonality, but not maybe too much. It's also so prone to abuse. Yeah. Yes. Like it's so prone to power yes. structures that abuse and hurt. And destroy people. Um, we're, we're alluding to horrible things this week. There was a there was a hearing at the Supreme Court about yeah. um, Roe v. Wade. That se- it seems like a, a majority of the justices are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I could do my own interesting thirty minute tangent on my journey around abortion rights, but I'm just going mm. to say I support abortion rights, and that's the end of the story. <laughs> um, but they're using adoption as a prop. And as an adopted person Mm -hmm. who has an incredibly complicated relationship with adoption, my birthday was this week as we're recording this. And there is this element of, that was one of two days I was with my biological mother. And she put me up for adoption. And I went to people who did not have my best interests at heart. And that ruined my life. Like, (laughs) they gave me a lot of things. You know, they paid for my school or whatever. But I would have had a better life if I had not gone with them. And that whole culture of this is God's plan for you to be adopted in this way, mm-hmm. I realized in in therapy was like still just embedded in me, even though I no longer believed it, even though I no longer believed that God was sitting there being like, I'm going to put this person here and this person here and this person there. But it still felt like a curse. You know, mm-hmm. it felt like instead of random chance, I had been like cursed from beyond the stars. And it is so complicated and difficult to live in this world and know that there are people who think that their sowing of pain is divinely ordained, which has always been the case. We've always had people who believe that. And you know, we have that in systems that are um strictly atheist, where it is, you know, ordained by someone other than God. But yeah. yep. it is a uniquely American form of that pain that I really struggle with. Um, And I also wanted to say that uh, I have some very good friends at my church who uh, have had a similar journey in terms of dealing with spiritual abuse and all of that, but they have friends. They have a friend who is a diehard atheist who goes to church because he likes the community Mm -hmm. and has even started leading a Bible study because he's like, I don't believe any of this, but it's interesting. (laughs) Let's talk about it. Um, 
I don't know. There's something primal in us that wants that space. Yeah. And yet that very thing is the thing that people abuse so readily. You know, I mean, it's it's the same thing as why there's so much familial abuse. It's supposed to be safe. So you yeah. can easily be told that something that is unsafe is safe and it becomes what you believe. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 in a way inevitable, right? Because it's something we all need. And so we're all going to be a part of it. And then once you're a part of it, there's a cost to leaving. And so someone who's in a position of power within that group can wield that against you. I mean, I think the structure of the of the sort of choice situation that we're in makes that kind of abuse about communities inevitable, unfortunately. I think there's a reason why small communities tend to not have this and larger communities tend to have it. It's just, it just once you get to a certain breaking point, it becomes, there is a certain inevitability to it. And I mean, we've seen it on the internet, right? Like you and I, Emily, we were around when the internet was real young and it was a really different place than it is now. And <laughs> the internet, you know, back in the day was, I mean, it wasn't perfect by any means, but there was not the kind of thing that we're dealing with today in terms of all this misinformation, all this stuff. I mean, it was largely propped up by, I mean, the stuff I was involved in, I was involved in very small communities on internet relay chat, but they were really, really, people adhered to the norms of those communities, right? They cared and they were small and it was easy to enforce the norms within them. Um, and so anyway, it's, I think it's, I think it's sort of a, just a fundamental feature of the human condition, unfortunately. Um, I mean, not even the human condition. I think it's a fundamental of any social being condition. Like when we meet aliens and we commiserate with them, I think they're going to say the same thing. They're going to go, yeah, that's hard, man. It's hard getting along with people. Yeah. Do, you think, like, do you think like pigs feel this way? Because pigs are very social animals. Do you think they like are just like, oh God, I hate that other pig. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how complicated your mind has to be to have, you know, the relevant structure in the society to do this but yeah maybe i don't know pigs are pretty smart i know that our son does not yet have that intelligence no he <laughs> probably does he i don't know it's hard to know what's going on in there yeah <laughs> but, but does I he guess, hate other toddlers no he just tries to talk to them about tenant and they don't understand <laughs> can we tell that story on mike can we tell this come on that's what which story the exactly? one that happened like today or yesterday. with the mom where how yeah. i'm not making friends at playgroup yeah so oh, they're at God. play come on this is a good oh, story so okay um anytime anybody even sees anybody with a symbol on their on their shoulder it reminds him of tete symbol which <laughs> is like the swat you know they have the like uh the swat <laughs> symbols that they put on their coat in the beginning of the in the he's prologue. literally seen the entire movie so we should be clear on so this. there's a little another little toddler who has a you know a like a a patch on his jacket and he calls it Teta symbol. And he's always like emphatically pointing going Teta symbol, Teta symbol at this other toddler. And I tried to explain it to the mom. I was like, Oh, sorry. My son's just really obsessed with the Christopher Nolan film tenant. She looks at me. It's just like this weathering look. And she goes, is that a children's film? And I'm like, not at all. <laughs> yeah. And you, you didn't have the heart to tell her that it's a movie like full of guns. Yeah. And and it, yeah. I was just like, no, um, we just expose them to everything. Huh? And then she avoided me for the rest of play group and uh, we're making friends. It's great. <laughs> Our social alienation starts now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back, back to Christmas and Charlie Brown. I, I mean, I guess Charlie Brown's worried about all this stuff, too, with community and the inevitability of, you know, commodification, commodification, yep. but also just the sort of the abuse and the cynicism that comes in with the larger and larger groups, you know, and, and it, there is an inevitability to it. But I guess we just have to take a small moment then 
and find, you know, where we can be good. We can be better, uh, at least in 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 this moment, in the next moment, in smaller groups. I don't know about how about the fate of the human race or how we can do as 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 a group of people. Like this COVID stuff, we don't, you know, <laughs> as I, a group, no we don't we don't do so well, I guess. You know, <laughs> collective action is a real problem, but th- you just you know, Christmas is all about holding on to the little the little good moments. That's how I feel, Justin. Rats. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a treat. Since the last time I was on this podcast, I have become friends with Laura. Um, <laughs> Yay! <and> like, <laughs> If if you couldn't tell from me alluding to her texting me, I'm proud of it. <laughs> there is this element of, you know, when you're entering a new relationship with another person of any kind, this element of like vulnerability and longing. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about this in in therapy where I was just like, I sometimes feel like I weaponize my vulnerability to get people to like me more. And she was like, that's just making friends. That's just being <laughs> a human. And like I, you know, um, you know, uh, when we when we have a conversation, when we chat, when we're talking about your life or my life or some other thing, or when we when I send you an impossibly long email about some dumb thing that's on my brain that night, um, there's something so pure and wonderful about that, and that's just two people. You know, mm-hmm. you two have that. You have that in your marriage. Libby and I have that in our marriage. But every time you start to add other people, yeah, it becomes this thing where there's another element that could be a chaotic element. Yep. And religion, especially when you have the extremely patriarchal, authoritarian, top-down structure of a lot of evangelical churches, it's just this space that is so right, so it's so easy to abuse that space. And I mean, I hate it, but like we need it all the same and mm-hmm. it's way too easy to like take that need that we have to make the world better and subvert it by saying actually this thing that is terrible will make it better and we are living in a country that is ruled by a bunch of people who want to hasten the end of the world you how do you argue with that you don't you you know join a cult in sweden and just be like at least these guys have it figured out mm-hmm. well that's what i was going to say and I, I i think this will maybe this could be the one positive silver lining to this whole thing is yes we can't choose our family yes we can't choose humanity who we are cohabitating with this planet with but we can choose our community we can and emily you are like a, you are a shining perfect example of that as someone who has and it's not easy to do this, but as you've you've shown, I think a great many people how it is possible to choose a community and to, in doing that, set what matters to you at the forefront of your life. And I think that's the that is the silver lining. We do have autonomy in that regard, and um, and so I think you know that's a positive note. Yeah, I just I just wrote a story at Vox about choosing your family, about yeah. the idea of queer chosen family sort of trickling out into the the among the cishets. And <laughs> um there's a power to that idea yeah. that like you know what, something like friendsgiving as as sort of like silly as it is is just like a fundamental expression of I can choose the people I want around me and nobody can stop me from doing that. 
And there is a power in that. And one of the nice things about this age in which we are like more interconnected than ever, but also more isolated than ever, that sounds like a pitch for a movie, doesn't it? Um, is that uh, <laughs> we can find our people, you know, whether you find them by, you know, find talking to people on Twitter, whether you find them by going to like a, like a, like a support group, whether you find them by going on random podcasts that people Twitter DM you about. Like, <laughs> Thank you, Justin. You, you can find, yeah, you can find your people. On that note, thank you so much, Emily, for being here. We will definitely have you and Libby back at some future date. I mean, hopefully before Christmas, next Christmas, but you know, if, it, if, if the, if the tides of, chance or fate have it we will it'll just be next christmas and emily tell the folks where they can find you online i am all over the internet you can find me doing all sorts of things and second of all it's always a delight to be here i enjoy talking to both of you i enjoy hearing your thoughts bouncing off of each other it's a very this is a, a very nice podcast to listen to when i when i'm looking for things to listen to in the shower which i often am <laughs> um the uh, the quality of guests you get, the quality of discussions you have, the quality of films you dissect is wonderful, and I'm happy to be a small part of it. Happy Thank holidays you. to the cows in the field <laughs> listenership from Emily Vanderwerf. Um, Thank just you, gonna get Emily. all my sappiness out. Oh, thank you, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, I I am on the internet. Uh, oh, and I was I was going to conclude that by saying I will come back anytime you want. But yes, I'm your Christmas guest every year. Like Hell that's yeah. just happening. It's settled. It's just happening. <laughs> um, next year we're doing It's a Wonderful Life. That's the preview. Perfect. So yeah, yeah, perfect. Great. We'll pencil it in. <laughs> um, I am on the internet on Twitter at twitter.com slash emilyvdw. You can find me at Vox. That's where most of my writing lives. I also have a newsletter at emilyvdw.letterdrop.com. And you can check out the podcast I make. It's a scripted fiction podcast about two women who solve cold cases and try not to fall in love. It's called Arden. We are currently writing season three. And as this episode drops, we have a, a short mini series about one of our characters, uh, Julie Capsum, uh, her time in prison that is uh, dropping episodes daily. So check that out. And that's where you can find me, Emily. I mean, Arden is amazing. If you guys haven't listened to Arden yet, Thank do you. it. This is, how you this is how you become my friend. You just tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are at CowsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com. And we have no episode. Our, well, actually, I don't know what's going to happen in the schedule because I think we're going to drop an old episode in the timeline uh, coming up in the next week or two. And then in January, we will do the Matrix 4, Matrix Resurrections, with the one and only David Chalmers, professor of philosophy at NYU and author of the new book, Reality Plus, who and the author of, I should also say, one of the coolest pieces of philosophy about the Matrix. So I'm very excited to talk about, talk about that with David Chalmers. So we'll see you guys then.